You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. You take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It's good to jump back into Timothy. Uh, I know not, not so much all of you, but myself, have not been able to, to be going through Timothy with you for the last few weeks. Last week was Resurrection Sunday, uh, and then I was away the two Sundays before that. I'm grateful for uh, Nate taking up uh, the, the responsibility of going through the Word and, and finishing up chapter 2 for us, and so very appreciative of that. Uh, as we've been in Second Timothy, remember this is the Apostle Paul pouring out his heart to his young protege, uh, that in a, a time of, of persecution, uh, a time of false teaching, a time of, of apostasy, people turning away from the faith, he is urging Timothy to remain faithful. And they discuss God's protection and perseverance of those he saves. And he causes, that God causes those he saves to depart from iniquity. And he went over how Paul was warning against uh, word battles, uh, against those controversies that were, were more harmful than good. And so Timothy himself was to flee youthful passions, uh, the temptation to argue and, and to be a fighter, and striving to, to win the argument as opposed to uh, loving those uh, who are he's engaging with uh, and bat- combating against false teaching with. Loving them, even those who provoke the arguments. Uh, Nate pointed out that Paul showed how we who are used by God are to be cleansing ourselves. And in that too, be thinking of the fact that, that it's God who uh, sanctifies us. And yet, too, at the same time, we have responsibility. He, he does not sanctify us apart from our obedience, apart from our pursuit of holiness. And yet, nonetheless, if we are sanctified, uh, God gets the credit. He gets the glory. It's because he has caused us to will and to act. And so he is honored in this. So we are to turn from our passions and pursue righteousness. And we're to pursue it too, as, as Nate went over, not as an island unto ourselves, but within the community of the church. And in doing so, we must stand on the word of God, stand on that which is the word of truth, the source of absolute truth. And so being kind to everyone, which insists we stand on the truth and not cower to the lies of the world, which will bring on us suffering and suffering for Christ's sake. And so for Timothy, too, this means uh, then engaging in, in the battle that, that must be taken up for the truth. And, and so seeking to correct his opponents, but to correct them with gentleness. And so that's where we pick up the text here for this morning. And as we look here, we, we see uh, different characteristics that Paul points out. And we're going to get in to see what these characteristics are all about. As we begin to think about this passage this morning, here in 2 Timothy 3, I want us to think about a man named Captain Christopher Newport. He was an English privateer and a ship captain, and he was a prominent figure in the settling of the colony of Jamestown in 1607. After seeing some sparkling sand, he became sick with gold fever along with the rest of Jamestown as well. And so on one occasion, he rode up the Potomac River to Aquila Creek, and he did this in order to buy sand from the Patawamic Indians. And no doubt they were thrilled. (laughs) They're giving away dirt for this exchange of goods. So uh, I'm sure they, they were loving that. And he would end up taking back to England 1,100 tons of this sand, with all this glimmering beauty in it, 
just to find out he did not really have gold, but he had fool's gold. He had pyrite. Now, he's not the only one throughout history that has been made a fool of like this. That's why it's called fool's gold. Um, But pyrite, at first glance, it looks like gold, and so has fooled many. But if you take a closer look at it, you find out that it really is, is a totally different substance because it has a totally different characteristic than gold. When you take a closer look, you see that it's harder than gold. Uh, you see that, that gold, it scratches where, where again, pirate's too hard to scratch. It actually, it sparkles more than gold. You know, often it's the sparkling that catches people's attention and throws them off and makes them think they find gold. But gold doesn't sparkle as much. And gold keeps its color even in its glimmering in, in the sun where, where there may be different shades of color in the glimmer of pyrite because of its metallic uh, substance. It's more like polished brass when it glimmers. It's also less dense than gold. Uh, so those that are, are sifting for it in, in riverbanks and different things, uh, when the, in, the, in their sifting pan, uh, gold will, will sink where the pyrite will, will slosh around more and float more. And so we see that there, there are clear different characteristics of, of pyrite, of fool's gold, than gold itself. Even though, again, at first glance, it may look like gold. But it is just fool's gold. How does this relate to our passage for this morning? Well, we are warned in Scripture of those in the church that make a profession of faith. And at first glance, they may look like brothers and sisters in Christ, walking in the faith as we are. But a closer look may show that they have a different characteristic than a true believer in Jesus Christ. And those characteristics are significant. When it comes to false converts and specifically false teachers, Jesus himself said that you will know them by their fruit, by by what's produced in their lives. We see in 1 John uh, the characteristics of one who who truly is saved, one who has genuine saving faith. That there's the evidence of one's salvation. And so in our text here this morning, uh, we see Paul lays out 19 characteristics that are true of false converts and unbelievers. And so these things are important to see, and also, too, because as, even as we've been going through 2 Timothy, even we are in 1 Timothy, we see the danger of those who infiltrate the church claiming to be followers of Christ but are, are really false teachers. And so these things are important for us. So as we think about this, let's, let's read our passage here for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. So as we pick up the text here, uh, what we see is, is Timoth- or Paul is giving this warning to Timothy. He is making Timothy understand, making sure he understands his circumstance. Timothy has been enduring battles in ministry. And he keeps having to make these battles. You know, even as we saw in 1 Timothy, and some time has passed between 1 and 2 Timothy. And so uh, we saw he was having to take up the battle against false teachers and, and false practices within the church, and, and he's still taking up those battles. And the fact that he's continuing this uh, could take him by surprise and, and, and cause him to waver and say, why is this the case? Why does this continue And so that, Timothy would not be surprised by the necessity to continue in these battles. And therefore, so Timothy would not be tempted to waver 
as Paul has been telling him about taking up these battles and how he is to confront false teaching within the church, how he is to uh, confront the false teacher and his opponents with gentleness, that God may use him to grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. As Timothy continues to confront the false teachers there in Ephesus, Paul wants to make sure he understands that this continuing in the battle, this continual struggle, should actually be expected. Uh, That it should not really take him by surprise. That he should understand that things will continue to get worse. And so we read here, as Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you must confront the false teachers. And again, with gentleness, that perhaps God may grant repentance And so, in other words, Timothy, work for their repentance, work that they might come to their senses and no longer be ensnared by the devil. Take up this fight in confronting false teaching in the church and continue to do so, verse 3, or chapter 3, but, but understand, but know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So don't be surprised when it's hard. It's going to be hard. And it's not going to get any easier. So take up the fight. Don't be surprised. It's going to be difficult. And so again, Paul was telling Timothy to expect difficulty because the last days are going to be difficult. And what are the last days? And we, we've talked about this before. Uh, the last days are the time period marked uh, after Christ's coming and and, uh, death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven. And the time until the day of the Lord comes and God brings his judgment leading up to Christ's return. And so the time in between that, uh, that's the time that is known as the last days, which therefore is the time known as the church age. And so therefore, Paul and Timothy, they were in the last days. And we too are in the last days and and have been in the last days for the last nearly 2,000 years. And so in the last days, difficulties is what should be expected. Here in the English Standard Version, the word difficulties can be translated and is translated in the New King James as perilous. It can also mean dangerous or fierce. This is a, a heavy word. Peril and fierceness and danger to the believer is what is foreseen for the last days. And so again, even for us, when it gets hard, we should expect that it won't supposed to get hard. It's been foretold that it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And why? Why is that the case? Uh, why should Timothy expect the battles and the difficulties he's, he's going through? Why should he expect that he's going to have to continue in these things? And why should we today continue or expect to see difficulties in the church and in the ministry and in the world around us? Well, verse 2 tells us why. As you see there, verse 2 begins with the word for. And so it's, it's giving explanation to why the last days will be difficult. And we see there that it is because of what the character of the people who make up the last days, what that character is. And so what Paul lays out here really is, is the characteristics of a unbeliever. As we look at our society, we look at uh, all the things that are happening in the world around us, we see really God's grace that restrains sin being pulled back. And that is an act of judgment on a society that is, has set themselves against God and, and continues them. So he, he pulls back his grace restraining sin and allows them to continue and to grow in such characteristics that we see here. These characteristics that are, are evidence of a heart that, that is set against God. And so they live openly this way and without shame in such characteristics. And what's so astonishing, really, about this text that we're not going to get to today, Lord Wing will continue it next week, but what's so astonishing is that what becomes clear 
is that what's in view here in these lists of characteristics of the unconverted is really not those who just outright deny Christ. It's really not those who are in the world saying they want nothing to do with Christ. But what Paul is pointing to here is actually those who are in the church who are claiming to be followers of Christ, that this is what characterizes them. That's what's so astonishing here. And so when he's saying that, that we should expect difficulty and why, and he lists out the, these character traits, what he's really talking about is the character traits of those in the church. We should think about that. There would be false converts in the church making things difficult, making it hard, making it fierce and dangerous. Now, as we look at this, again, the idea of there being false converts characterized not by holiness, not by the fruit of the Spirit, but by characteristics of unbelievers we see here the very first character that, that Paul points out in this list is the characteristic of self-love. That they are lovers of self. You could say they're self-centered. And on this being the very first thing that Paul lists, James Adam rightly calls this the fountainhead of all that follows. John Calvin said, self-love, which is put first, may be regarded as the source from which flows all the vices that follow after. And so the rest that Paul lists here flows from one making it all about themselves. That they are lovers of self. What matters most to them is their own convenience, is their own pleasures. It's about them being seen by others in a specific light. It's all about them. They are lovers of self. They are self-centered. You know, it's difficult enough as we think about this. And, and again, false converts being in the church, it's difficult enough to strive to kill our, our own self-centeredness, right? The, uh, the, the, the self-love that we all naturally have in ourselves and to battle against that in the flesh. It's hard enough for that in our individual lives. And the ministry is difficult enough to see people conform into the image of Christ and mature, to not see this self-centered characteristic and all that comes from it, to not see that uh, prevail in the church. It's all hard enough the way it is then for the church then to cultivate a self-centered attitude with with an ill-biblical philosophy of ministry. If we think about today, the church at large, the church, the 21st century church in America, we see very much a church that very often decides what the church should be and what the services should look like, not based on what God has laid out in his word, but based on what will draw people in. And in such things, we aim for shorter and more shallow sermons, void of any conviction and anything that may offend, but instead are just full of psychological self-help instructions. In thinking about what the church is to be and how we're going to function as the church, uh, very often it's common to put surveys out in the community to the unbelieving community and ask, hey, what would bring you to church? And then that's the standard for what we make church to be. And what are we communicating when we do that? Hey, come and we'll make church what you want it to be, what will suit you. We're communicating, it's all about you. The church is about you, what you want, what your preferences are. And you wonder why that it's a, almost a joke when people talk about fighting over the color of the rug. Not a joke. Or the worship battles. What kind of style of music should we have? You get all those kind of things when we make church about 
you, about me and my preferences and what I want. And then when we make church about you, what are we communicating? Your Christian life is about you. Because one of the central aspects of the Christian life is the church and gathering together. If that's all about you, my Christian life must be. If it's about me, it's all about me. But what do we read in Scripture? Is it about you? Is it about me? No. Whose church is it? It's God's church. It belongs to him. Who's it all about? It's about him. What about your life? Is your, is your life your own? Who created your life? God, right? And why did he create it? For his honor and glory. And for those of us who are saved, what does Scripture say? We've been bought at a price. We are not our own. And why are we here? Why have we been purchased? To the praise of his glorious grace, right? It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about that we would make church to fit us, but that we would conform to what he calls us to in his word for his glory. We, we saw that in 1 Timothy, right? What does God desire for his church? That's what we ask going through 1 Timothy. And he lays it out pretty clearly, what he desires for his church. It's not about us. When we make it about us, we, we cultivate a community that is ripe for false converts. Because why should I repent of my sin when it's all about me? Why should I do what's uncomfortable? And, and why do I need to, uh, to, to do these things that, that are offensive to the world around me that would set me against my neighbor and others? I, why would I do that if it's all about me? I want to seek out my own comforts if it's about me. Now, I don't want you to mishear me when I say these things. Because nonetheless, we cannot prevent altogether false converts within the church. And honestly, that's not our job. Our job is to be faithful and trust God for the outcome of those things. Trust God for his purposes. Now, faithfulness will keep us from doing what will promote false conversions. But we are called to be faithful to God, to trust him. And we see, uh, though there were those false converts in the early church and in the time that Paul was writing, there were those who operated from an, an unconverted heart that operated out of self-love, producing all the kinds of, of, of worship and indulging of one's self. And so we see here then that these things produced everything else that follows here in this list of 19 characteristics. And the very next thing we see then here that is produced by self-love is the love of money. It's the idea of greed. It's the idea of not being content with what you have. Which then too doesn't trust God for what you have. And recognize that all you have is by his grace. No, we're, we're greedy for more. Now, no, we, we discussed in 1 Timothy that money and wealth in of themselves is not wrong. Uh, the problem is not having money, but as someone else uh, well put it, the problem is when money has you. And when a, it's a false convert, and even more specifically in this case, false teachers in the church, uh, that love themselves, and so are seeking to indulge themselves with material things and seek to gain money and all that it brings through whatever means necessary, all of this then corrupts their teaching, corrupts their ministry. And we see that today with the prosperity gospel, do we not? It's all driven by greed. And so even what we see today is just like what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that they, they are those that imagining godliness is a means of gain. And so they feign some sort of piety, though they are actually as corrupt as the day is long. We must realize the power of greed. 
really realize it in our own lives, too. If we're not content, uh, if we're not recognizing all we have is, is just by God's grace, and so we're always wanting more, uh, what that really can drive us to. And, and again, you can go back to the passage when we, uh, the, the messages that we, we talked about this in First Timothy chapter 6, and, and what greed brings and, and what it rots in a person's life. Now, before we, we go on in the rest of this list, I, I think it's worth noting what D. Edmund Hebert says as he comments uh, on these characteristics. He tells us that we shouldn't understand this list of vices uh, as of, you know, Paul describing one individual or um, as all of these things being found in any one individual. Uh, be, these are characteristics found in general in the unconverted. He says some of these traits will be outstanding in some people, while others will be prominent in other people. So we, we should understand it that way. So it's not that, well, i got to find all of these things in one person. Uh, that, that's not the point of this list. But as we go on here, we see that uh, what is produced by the love of self is, again, one, the love of money, and also then pride and arrogance. Uh, the word translated here as proud is the Greek word for bragger. One so full of himself that he boasts and brags about himself and, and the things he's done and all that he accomplishes, uh, that he, he's, he's drawing the attention to himself. Hey, look at me. Look how great I am as he pats himself on the back and announces all his good deeds. He's a bragger. He wants people to think about him in a certain way. Think about how great he is, how intelligent he is, how good he looks, or whatever else it may be that puts him in the spotlight. It's all about him, because he's a lover of himself. And that person, then, of course, is, as we see in the, the ESV translates the next word as arrogant. Their pride is seen not just in what they say, but also how they carry themselves. And then we see here that they are abusive. Or the New American Standard Bible translates it as they're revilers, or the legacy standard, or New King James translates it as blasphemers. They're someone who is so full of themselves, they're a lover of themselves, that they will not stand for someone who threatens that self-love. Those who might take the attention off of them, or throw a wrench in the plans of them getting what they want, They'll speak poorly about that person. They'll make that one an opponent. They will revile them. They will be slanderous, as you can also translate that word. They're abusive in their words. They, uh, the lover of self is full of such pride that they have disdain for others who, who do not see them in the light that they see themselves in. And then the next thing we see is a persistent attitude of disobedience. It says they are dis disobedient to parents. If as children one does not respect their parents' authority, it's likely that they will grow up to not respect any authority. And the Old Testament shows clearly a persistent disobedient child is a disorderly and rebellious child. And as we think about this, this idea in our world today, uh, we think about just how children are, are brought up and raised and, and are not today shown and called to respect authority, even their parents' authority. Now, one pastor called this uh, an endemic in our day. I think about one of the biggest reasons why, yes, the sin nature of children and ourselves. But also, I would argue, a big reason why we see this is because of the breakdown of the family in society. The foundation of society is the family. And we see society shooting itself in the foot, tearing down, tearing out its own foundation. And the breakdown of the home and the promotion of, uh, of 
what we want to call a home as opposed to how God has designed the home to be. And so let us then be those who herald the truth to the society around us of what a home is to look like and how God has designed it with a father and a mother and that the, that father and mother are in union together in that lifelong commitment to each other. Let us ourselves who are our parents not be lazy parents and let all of us stand on the truth of God's word as we seek to raise up the next generation. Uh, let us be followers of Christ's lead and proclaim the truth of, of how God has designed and structured the home and let, it, let us live it out ourselves. And then too, along with disobedience, coupled with this, there's a few words that are, are coupled in, in different sections here. We also see then unthankfulness. We see the, the lack of, of proper, genuine appreciation. Disobedience demonstrates a lack of gratitude for the benefit that parents bring. And one grows to learn to be ungrateful to those around them and others, including God himself. And what flows from a lack of gratitude is sin. Uh, that's why we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, after Paul uh, gives this list of, of sinful behaviors, he says, but instead, so instead of those sinful behaviors, let there be thanksgiving. When there's no thanksgiving, you have uh, this, these habitual sins. But thanksgiving will replace those things. And we have gratitude towards God to live for him. And so there, or again, with these words coupled together that, that go with each other, we have, again, disobedience to parents, uh, unthankfulness, and along with that then comes that they're unholy. And this Greek word carries the idea of opposition to sacred things. And so we see here that they have no honor towards God and others. The next thing is then we see that they are heartless. And not honoring others, they don't have affection towards others. Uh, the positive of this word that's, that's translated here as heartless, uh, the positive for, for it demonstrates love towards one's family or even towards one's country. It's this familial affection. But the negative word here is the idea of lacking positive feelings towards others. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other, uh, other Christian writings glosses this word as hard-hearted, unfeeling, without regard for others. And so we can see how this is a characteristic of one who really loves themselves. When you love yourself, you... you you have no regard for others and how they feel and what's good for them. You're really just all about you. So my friends, in thinking about these things, I mean, would you or I be characterized with, with disobedience, with, with a lack of gratitude, with being unholy, with having disregard for others? Do we, do we see those things in ourselves? You fail to consider how your actions may affect those around you, how it may affect those you, you work with, how it may affect unbelievers, knowing that you claim to be a follower of Christ. Do you consider how your actions affect your church or even those in your own household? Or do you have disregard for them? It's not important to you how your actions and your words and your attitudes affect others. Whose interests do you really seek to see fulfilled 
Is it always your interest above all else? Or do we care more about the interests of others above our own interests? Doesn't Philippians 2 tell us that when we are more concerned about the interests of others, we're we're following then the example of Christ? Along with this, Paul lists being unappeasable. This is one that can't be reconciled with. They can't compromise. They're unwilling to actually listen to what others say. They're unwilling to be reasonable. They, they refuse to be anything but hostile. Which leads them then to accuse others. We see the English Standard Version here uh, translates the next word as slanderous, which is related to the word earlier that uh, we said can be translated as blasphemer. This here could also be translated as devilish. That's why Satan is called the devil, because he is a slanderer or an accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so when one acts like this, They're not being like Christ. They're being like Satan. They're a slanderer. They're an accuser. Paul then goes on to describe the unbeliever, the false convert, as as lacking self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, among other things. So the true believer evidences they are truly saved, if they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, by growing in self-control. But the one without the Spirit continues in their lusts and fulfills their passions with, again, disregard for what their actions really are doing and what their actions really mean. They do not control their tongues or their thinking. Their desire is to please self as they, again, are lovers of themselves. They are not aiming to please God. And therefore, we see they're brutal. Or you can say they're, they're savages. They are like untamed animals. They attack those they perceive as a threat to their interest, to their self-love, as they are led by their instincts. Again, like an animal. And so they do not love what is good, which means they don't love what God loves. They don't love what's in the best interest of others. They don't love what is good. Verse 4 says they are treacherous. Or you could say they're traitors. Uh, This is the same word that's used of Judas in the Gospel of Luke. Judas who betrayed our Lord. Judas who, who lived and served as a disciple of our Lord for three years. And then when the opportunity came for 30 lousy pieces of silver, he delivered him over to wicked men. He was a traitor. He was a false convert. And such a one is only and ultimately true to themselves. But hey, they love themselves. We also see they are reckless. Not only do they not consider what they do with uh, how it will affect others, but they they don't really consider what they do very much at all. Uh, They're quick to act and slow to think. They're not considerate about consequences. They just speak. They just do. They are reckless. And this comes from being swollen with conceit. The word literally refers to being blinded by pride. Uh, The root word is the idea of being engulfed with smoke. Firefighters will tell you uh, that when they go into a burning house and they're doing a primary search for any possible victims, they're usually working blind because of the thick smoke from the burning furniture uh, and the the other uh, materials that are used today in construction, like the glues that hold uh, wood together and, and the carpets burning and anything else like that that produces that thick black smoke when it burns, causes firemen to be blinded by the smoke. And and so that's the idea here, of one being surrounded by the smoke, engulfed by the smoke so they can't see. 
this one who is swollen with conceit is one whose pride keeps them from being able to see beyond themselves. Because of their pride, they, they, they think, of course, what, what they assume is good is what's good. Just because they assumed it. Just because they, they think it, they feel it. Of course it will turn out the way it should turn out. Of course. Because I thought of it. So that's the way it's going to be. And so by their blindness, they're reckless with their actions. Their pride keeps them from thinking through to the furthest and most logical extent of their actions and their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts. They are, as the word could also be translated, puffed up. They're full of their own pride. So they can't be bothered to think beyond what they think is good. What do we see then with such a one? They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice that, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You cannot be a lover of pleasure, of the desires of your flesh, a lover of sin, and love God. It's not just that you love pleasure more, you still love God, but you just love pleasure more. You love God, but you love your sin more. That's not what it is at all. You love pleasure rather than loving God. And that's the way it always is, because you cannot love both. When you love pleasure and sinful desires, you hate God, because God is holy. And really, that's the truth for all of us. Whenever one of us sins and we choose our sin, in that moment, we are loving our sin, we are loving our pleasure rather than loving God. I think that's part of the reason why uh, sometimes we ourselves and, and, and the unbeliever fail to see the, uh, the, how sinful sin really is. Because we think, well, I, you know, I, just, I just loved my sin a little more here. That's, that's why I chose it. Uh, or people don't see the offense of their sin against a holy God. Because they don't see that in doing so, they hate God. But we can't love both pleasure and God. And then we see, verse 5 says, that such a one is having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, there are those who are characterized by some or more of these vices who, who claim to follow Christ and, and therefore also put on a show of some kind of piety, some kind of, this is what Christians do, this is what a Christian looks like, and, and so claiming to be a Christian, they, they do those things. And so, for instance, many that would call themselves a Christian say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I mean, I go to church. I go to church, and, you know, I, I do things with my church. I volunteer I work, I do good things. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But they don't really understand why we gather as a church. So they don't really know the benefit. They don't know the power. Matter of fact, as they live their lives in contrast to their profession of faith, they deny the power. They know a Christian goes to church, so they go to church. Again, thinking of pyrite. There's things about pyrite that makes it look like gold and can fool someone to thinking it's really gold. But when you do a closer examination, it has a different characteristic than gold. And really, when what's specifically in view here is false teachers, now, that very idea is what makes false teachers all the more dangerous. That at first glance, they can look like brothers in Christ someone I can trust and, and follow. Uh, but when you, you, you examine what they're teaching a little closer, you see that they have veered from God's word. In some ways, again, they, they externally put on this show of being a Christian, but it has no inward value. It's just external 
And so as a false teacher, again, working to make themselves look like a Christian on the outside, but really they're, they're really just full of dead man's bones. Uh, they're full of all kinds of defilement and impurities, which again, the, the, all this, the external, the external veneer just makes them more dangerous. And so then we see here in verse 5, the response Paul commands Timothy to have towards such people. And what is that command? Avoid them. Avoid them. They've demonstrated that they are unappeasable. They, are, are, they cannot be reasoned with. They're blind by the smoke of their own pride. You, you have confronted them with gentleness, and you've gotten nowhere because they are, are settled in their ways. So what else is there to do but avoid them? And again, Paul commands, avoid them. Keep the flock of God safe from the false teaching, but avoid them. Do not entertain them. Do not allow them to have or to continue to have a platform. Avoid them. This really is church discipline here. That's what Paul is commanding. They show themselves to be living as an unbeliever, so treat them as an unbeliever. And so again, as we see these things, it's evident that, that as every other sin that we're told about in Scripture, we need to take sin seriously within the church. We need to confront sin within the church. And yes, and at times that means that, that we have to say things and do things that are, are confrontational. Again, we do it with gentleness and love. Uh, we may uh, be teaching things and, and confronting sin in such a way that might be offensive to others, but it, one, again, it's all in love, in the hopes that God would grant repentance that there'd be restoration and, and reconciliation. But nonetheless, we need to take these things seriously. Also, too, as we, we see such a list out like this in Scripture, I believe it's also a call for us to examine ourselves. Do we see these characteristics in our own lives? Again, as we say, these are the evidences that the character of a, uh, an unbeliever or a false convert, that doesn't mean that we won't find these things in a genuine Christian. We might. That doesn't mean we may not find these things within ourselves. We very well might. And so one, again, that, that's, that's part of the importance of being a community together. That as we pursue righteousness and, and, and pursue holiness, that we don't do it as an island to ourselves, but within the community of the church. Because there may be areas of my life that I'm blind to, but you're not. You might see this attitude and this characteristic in me that I, I've, I've been blinded to. And that as my brother and sister in Christ, you would love me enough to pull me inside and say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. And that we would do that for each other. Again, that's part of the reason why we're in community together as a church, to love each other in this way, to want to see each other grow in Christ-likeness. So we come alongside each other and love each other. And sometimes that means tough love. That we tell each other things that we may not want to hear. But listen, if we're blind to it, it's what's best for us. And two, as, as we would examine ourselves, that we would be seeking God for wisdom and looking to his word. I think it's be wise that we pray as, as David did in Psalm 139, verse 24, when he said, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. That should be our prayer. Is there, is there anything in me that is not of one who, who shows that they love you, Lord? Is there anything in me that is a contradiction to my profession of faith? Show it to me. Reveal it. That I would repent of it. Lead me in ways of everlasting. Whatever self-love and self-centeredness remains in us, let us be repenting of it and, and seeking to put it to death. Remembering Remembering the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because the gospel tells us we don't have to live that way any longer. That we're no longer a slave to our sin and our natural desires. That's not who we are anymore. 
Why? Because Christ died for us. And that he's our representative. So we died in him. His death is our death to sin, that we are no longer enslaved to it, that we no longer have to obey it as our master. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember what Christ has done for us. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died to put the self, the love of self to death. That I would no longer love myself as if I were the greatest thing in the world. But I would love Christ because he is the greatest thing in the universe. There's nothing greater than our Lord and Savior. And he died to free us. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. We are free from enslavement to sin. That we may live for our Lord. And honestly, you know, we may not look at this passage as a great passage to be looking at just before we take communion, but I think it really is. Because communion reminds us of the gospel, that we, we do this in remembrance of our Lord. And we proclaim the gospel to each other until he comes. And so it reminds us of what Christ has done for us to set us free, that, that we would no longer live this way, but pursue holiness in everything. How great is our Savior and our Lord? And my friends, finally, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, I, I want to encourage you to do that. If you are still looking to anything about you, just look and find yourself in this list. It's true of all of us in our natural selves. We are not good in ourselves that we may be saved, but it's only in what Christ has done. Only he saves. Only he was good enough for us. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. And live for him, putting to death the love of self. Putting to death in everything that, that the love of self produces. That now you have been dethroned from your life and recognize that Christ is Lord of all. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.